I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, founder of Classic Album Sundays. We tell the stories behind the albums that have changed our lives through our worldwide immersive listening events and our website, which hosts artist interview videos, playlists, and blogs about our favorite albums. This podcast features my conversation with Manuel Gottsching, the former kingpin of Prague kraut rock group Ashra Temple, who went solo in the late 70s and shortly thereafter created an hour-long piece, E2-E4. This composition has been sampled so many times in dance music and has also been a cult hit in the underground clubs throughout the world. This interview is recorded at a Classic Album Sundays event at Brilliant Corners in London. Once you have listened to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to the entire album following our listening guidelines. And in this way, you can have your own Classic Album Sundays at home. back up to um, maybe the 1960s, if that's okay. <laughs> he started studying with, uh, I, I, I was reading for our website, you gave us your top five albums of all time. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And one of them I was very surprised about, which was the Rolling Stones' Aftermath. Mm-hmm. So would you kindly tell us why that was an, an inspiration to you and maybe how that kind of helped your, uh, inspire your career? Yeah, it was. Um 65 uh, with some sc- a school friend of mine he wanted to to, to, uh, uh, to create in, in the basement of, of the house of the parents a, a party room and uh, so we were invited and we all helped painting the walls black and, and at the time we were listening to this album uh, Aftermath uh, yeah, that inspired us, and so we thought, wow, we have to find, we have to found a band, we have to make music, so, and uh, yeah, and that's how we created the first band in '66 uh, or '67, called the Bomb Proofs. Was uh, a pure cover band. We were playing some Rolling Stones titles, some Beatles, some Trogs, some uh, Trogs. Uh, Very cool. <laughs> Uh, wild thing, yes. Yeah, of course. And uh, some uh, small faces I liked it a lot. And, uh, yeah, and we did it for one year, and uh, then it got a little bit boring, and we wanted to make something new, something better. And uh, yeah, so we thought about creating our own music in a way, but we didn't know how to do it. And we thought about uh, we, we were all, all already starting to improvise with some tracks, like for example, there was a nice track also by, it's not from the Rolling Stones, but it, it, I only knew this version, uh, which was called uh, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. And so this is about 10 minutes or so, and we, we made a version of 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And it's and 
and I was a singer in the band, and I didn't understand very much English. <laughs> so I just tried to imitate the sound of A, O, A. I had nonsense uh, lyrics. It was, yeah, but it was fun. I mean, uh, we played on some school parties, and uh, they all liked it. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but that was the first step that we tried to improvise, to, to build our own music, but we didn't know how to make it. Mm. And that was the next step, was uh, uh, a year later, I think, um, 1968, there was an album by Blue Cheer called Vinkibus uh, Eruptum, and uh, because we loved blues, and I, I, I'm always talking, I have to say that I'm always talking about my school friend Hartmut Enke, with whom I all started this, and he was a bass player. So the whole story which finally led to Ashraf Temple uh, was, was Hartmut and me. Um, before, I was, uh, when I was a child, I was uh, studying uh, classic guitar for many years, and, uh, but this development towards a, a band was with Hart and Enke. Mm -hmm. And uh, we love blues music and then we thought, but we don't want to, It's we, we cannot play blues music. This is a bit stupid and... Uh, why, why did you not want to play blues music? Because we didn't feel it's authentic. Uh, we, uh, you have to have the right... Uh, uh, we were two well-educated middle-class boys, and then singing about, <laughs> sing about the blues. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but they did that here in Britain. There you go. Yes, but I love the British blues. I yeah. The British blues. Yes, it had a great influence. I mean, I was influenced by, by Alexis Corner and mm. John Mayle and all these guitar players. And we, we really like to hear it. But of course we wanted not to play a real blues, but we wanted to extend it, to go over it and to make it experimental. We just took the blues as an element or as a basic structure, as, as a scale to play, but then starting to improvise, starting to make experiments, like for example Cream did when they started uh, playing a theme and then extending it and then making sessions for, for an hour, or not for an hour, but for some 10 minutes or so, and, and then coming back to the theme. And so we've come to the second band, or no, the third band, in between was a very free band, because we loved also free jazz, and we mm. were playing just freestyle without any rules. Uh, we made just one concert, and we had to stop it after <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> after so how many minutes? After 10 minutes, we had... Uh, why did you have to stop it? Because we played in a youth club in Berlin, which was rather conservative, and they were all expecting bands to play blues music, uh, cover music from blues, <laughs> cover music like this. <laughs> right. and so this was just not the right place. There were other places at the time, interesting places, but somehow we were too young. We were 15 or 16, and so we didn't know. Uh, and so we founded the Steeplechase Blues Band. The name was. Yeah, it, we were not a real blues band, but uh, we took the elements and improvised and making. Uh, this was uh, the for forerunner of the of the Ashra Temple, and then finally this led to Ashra Temple. But did you also study with with Thomas Kessler as well? Yeah, 
Can you tell us about that and like who he was <coughs> and, and what you learned from him and why you wanted to study with him in the first place? Um, Can you all hear in the back? You're okay? All right, great. Thomas Kessler was a, uh, yeah, he was an important figure because he was running a very important place in Berlin. This was called uh, the Beach Studio. This was in a, in a school, um, uh, uh, a big room for where bands can play, rehearse, uh, and he was giving lessons. Um, he was actually, Thomas Kessler wasn't, um, or he still is, uh, 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 how do you call it, avant-garde music com composer. <laughs> Experimenting with tapes and tape loops and editing tapes, and so he had a, he had this. He also used this studio for himself for for his own compositions. But he was also teaching and training, and this was a place where all the various the, the most important bands in end of the 60s in Berlin they met there. This was Tangent Dream. This mm -hmm. was the very important uh, agitation free young people who like there were musicians from agitation free they came um, there was Christoph Franke who later joined Tension Dream there was Lutz Ulrich who later was with me with Ashra Temple for some time there was Michael Hönig who played with uh, Tension Dream and with Klaus Schulze and with so it was just the, the, the right scene where, where everybody met and where I met all these people and Thomas Kessler was a very good teacher in a way because he, he, he taught how to, how, to, how to play, how to perform, how to, how to improvise. Uh, it was not a strict teaching. He didn't give lessons in this, in this way, but we were just playing. We had some dates there and we played. And then we, can, we could ask him and he was listening to it and then he was explaining um, yeah, you should do this, you should do this, this was good, and I would propose, blah, 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 and so, so, yeah, we had, we had a very important influence, I think, in this 60, 68, 69, yeah, this period. happening in Germany at this time because it's a really interesting period for German music I think the late 1960s and early 1970s and it sounds like there was some kind of center point for some of this uh, with Thomas Kessler and uh, but there was other things going on too like Cannes and really interesting avant-garde music that really didn't wasn't really based <coughs> on American blues it just had its own thing going on why do you think this was happening in Germany at this time. Um, this was, but what I described, of course, was the scene in Berlin. There was mm. another one in Cologne with Ken, where the early yeah. Kraftwerk mm. uh, uh, came up. There was a scene in Munich with Amandul, Popol mm. uh, and there were other bands around in Hamburg and Stuttgart. It was a, it was a very interesting period because. Uh, um, well, it's very simple to say that after World War II, 
in Germany the culture was dead so it was the most attractive interesting people were either killed or gassed or they emigrated if they could so um, uh, and building up a new Germany was not only building new houses and new streets uh, and new bridges it was also trying to build up a new culture and people in the 50s were very careful very um, um, yeah, very shy, uh, uh, some, some, uh, there were only two rock and roll singers, I remember, <laughs> in the 50s <laughs> in Germany, yeah, this was Peter Kraus and another one with the, uh, so, but the, most of the music, the popular or the commercial music, was was the so-called Schlager, and this is simple songs with simple lyrics who, who wouldn't harm anybody uh, about love and the holiday and blah blah blah. And so, <laughs> 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 uh, so this was okay, and, uh, and this was the business, the, the right. business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course there was a jazz scene, but the jazz scene has has. Uh, was 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 uh, cut in a way because in the last year there's a famous jazz player was Coco uh, Schumann he, but he was in the KZ uh, Theresienstadt and he loved jazz but of course he was not allowed to listen to it and when he finally came back uh, yes he missed some years in the development of the American jazz and so there was a gap in a way uh, in all in all sorts of music and. Uh, in the 60s, um, there was a new movement. Uh, yeah, there was a new generation coming up, and a new generation of artists, of musicians. Um, of course, I can. I better talk about music. Um, and they were all influenced, of course, by America and by British music. There were, of course, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and in England, some things were happening. And then there was America with. Uh, the beat generation, the, the uh, uh, later Grateful Dead and the Flower Power, and so uh, yeah, the, the people in Germany, the musicians, and they said, we, we want to make something, we have to make something, we have to find a way to make something new, something German, our own, to find back some kind of identity. Uh, the problem was there was not a real business for it, so everything was very uh, um, crazy in a way that uh, everybody acted uh, as he wanted, and, and so very crazy and very a great variety of music was uh, was made uh, just because. Uh, there were no rules, and there were no agents, there were no managers, there were no record companies, so people just tried out, and uh, so a lot of things happened, and, and of course a lot of things were completely stupid, but uh, some very interesting happened, maybe, uh, like, for example, Ken was one of my really big favorites in, mm. from German music, yeah. but Amondul, for example, was uh, uh, it was a, a political group, yeah? this was not a music group, they just played music a little bit for fun and then mm -hmm. the music became more important, and, but actually there were no real musicians. Uh, um, there were a few kind of groups like that too in Germany, weren't there, like with certain ones, uh, I think it was a band called Sweet Smoke maybe? 
Uh, and they lived on a commune. I mean, it wasn't uh, like a formal yeah. group uh, per se. But I like what you said about no rules. Uh, the fact that there was kind of no rules, there was almost like a freedom to be able to create <coughs> something new, and that was very freeform and very avant-garde in its own way. Mm. Yeah, that was the reason, and that was what many, what, what. People here in, in England or also in America, they wrote then, well, this, this was, uh, maybe, well, this was only possible in this period or in this time because there was nothing. Today it's very different. Today we have, again, we have all the structures. It was, funny thing is it was really forbidden to, to act as a manager, as a private manager in Germany in the 60s or still later in the 70s. Uh, you had to go to the official governmental uh, agency uh, if you wanted a job as a musician. Yeah, so of course nobody did. If you, uh, so it was the road manager who acted as a manager or, or it was uh, the graphic designer or it was just a friend and, mm. and so of course this was all very just unprofessional yeah but uh, maybe this was just the big the big thing why it, why it was so special right exactly <laughs> well with Ashra Temple when you started Ashra Temple um, did you have any kind of manifesto did you have any idea of what you wanted to achieve or what you wanted to sound like was there some kind of <laughs> initial thought process when you started the group um, no it was just a uh, further development from what I explained before from the steeplechase blues band we left mm -hmm. some blues away and then again coming back to a more freeform band but then we were I mean I was only 17 18 hard as well we met Klaus Schulze he came he, he played with Tangent Dream before the first album and uh, we Hartmut and me we had just bought Hartmut went to England to buy in London huge equipment because in, in Berlin it, it was not possible to buy it second hand and we were schoolboys and we didn't have the money to, to pay that mm -hmm. so he went to London and uh, bought second hand uh, uh, yes huge equipment he was very lucky because he went into a shop in Shaftesbury Avenue or Charing Cross and there was uh, there were just two roadies from Pink Floyd coming in, bringing back some old WEM cabinet. I said, "Wow, I take this." <laughs> 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 so he bought it, and, and he, he made it. He organized the transport with a taxi to a Victoria station, and then in the train, <laughs> and then in, with a train to Berlin. And somehow we managed to get it through the custom because we said they're old and they're broken. <laughs> and, but suddenly, from this moment on, we had the biggest equipment in West Berlin. So, and uh, yeah, and that, that, uh, then we met Klaus Schulze. He said, "Wow, it looks good. Should we make a band?" <laughs> so he was impressed by your equipment. He was really impressed. There you go. <laughs> but I mean, no. Of course, he was a good drummer. Yeah. as well yes <laughs> so we just started playing and we found yeah it's a good idea and we formed a new band we changed a little bit and so well we left we, we changed back a little bit more to experimental not choose to play blues schemes or themes and uh, that's the reason why we found Ashra Temple yeah. very simple mm -hmm. Now it's, um, you also did a record with Timothy Leary. Mm -hmm. What was that like working with him? 
Um, it was quite fake, yeah, funny. <laughs> 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 Can you remember? <laughs> Maybe I should be asking. <laughs>
Um, yeah, so we, we founded a band. We <coughs> enlarged the band with more members, singers, and guitar, um, keyboard player, and, and uh, uh, another drummer. And then we went out to Switzerland to record it there. And I was really impressed because I, I, I didn't, really didn't know very much about him and I expected some kind of, of guru uh, sitting there in a white crowd on the metal <laughs> movie, oh, <laughs> and he was completely different. He was just a very uh, relaxed uh, American style. He loved good food, he loved wine, he loved to drive around with his Porsche. <laughs> and he loved life, yeah, so he was, uh, and it was, yeah, it was very nice to, to meet him. Uh, and at the same time, he wasn't very good. I mean, he was a psychologist. Mm -hmm. He had his own, um, uh, he worked on this for, for many years, and a neurologist, and so he knows, he knew how to work with people. So we were a band of very, very different musicians, and we all had very different ideas about those seven levels, uh, how to make the interpretation of this. And so, but he managed it. He talked to everybody, and uh, he found, yeah. So in the end, uh, yeah, we just made it, and that was a good thing, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I really have to say, this has nothing to do with LSD. These seven mm -hmm. levels. This is just a theory, which is a, a psychological, or how to say it, theory about levels that each human being may pass uh, or may not pass. And it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with drugs. It has nothing to do. You can. Timothy Leary had a good word. He can say, "I want when when you want to go from point A to point B, you have your choice. You can walk. You can take the bike. You can take the car. You can take uh, I don't know. And of course, you can take drugs, or you don't have. It, it doesn't matter. This is mm -hmm. just uh, a strategy. Uh, if you want to." know something more about you and if you want to explore something how you make it yeah, so and of course he was involved very heavy with the influence of LSD mm. onto uh, psych I mean LSD was oh, originally it was invented as a as a um, uh, sort of truth serum I believe wasn't uh, it? yes for 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 treatment for mm. medical treatment mm -hmm. for yeah, so and it was only the, yeah, later in the 60s that uh, it got a kind of party drug. Yeah. And therefore he was, he was uh, credited as the LSD guru. And, uh, okay. Well, maybe a little he liked it, but there's a very good book about him it's by, mm -hmm. by English called John Hicks. You know, uh, this is a very good biography, very detailed. And, uh, uh, this is called I Surrounded America. Yeah, That's, uh, yeah very nice. Very, uh, I, I found it very, very interesting to read it. Uh, because there were many things I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. I met him only this one time. We were three days in the studio. 
Then we went back to uh, Cologne with our mixer and had the mixing, and then we had to re, uh, re record some of the tracks. And Tim Leary was always on the telephone because he couldn't come to Germany. Mm. And uh, it was Brian Barrett here from England, who is his assistant at the time. He was with us at the mixing. And uh, they played him with the phone. Listen, do you like the sound? And yeah, some more synthesizer sound. <laughs> <laughs> more cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> he liked to work with it because for him it was new. He never did a record before. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he did records, but only with a talking speech. No? Uh, but he never used music as a medium, and he, he somehow liked it. And, uh, he understood that music is a medium to transport a message, and so I think he even bought a synthesizer later. <laughs> <laughs> With Astra Temple, did you feel that you were transmitting some kind of message yourself? Um, no, maybe it's a message. It's just how to say it. That's kind of freedom, or, or yeah, do what you want. But uh, uh, no, that's not correct. It's it's difficult to say. I never had. I really never had uh, the idea of taking a message. I mean, uh, for me, a good music is music when it uh, yes, when it's music that sounds good, sounds easy in a way, but when it also has some more some kind of intellectual idea behind it or a kind of concept but which is not necessary that you know about it but you, you can or you cannot so music which is just only blah 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 for fun is not interesting but I don't like music who is too much for the brain or who is too intellectual and there's nothing where you need something you need a paper to read what it's all about and why what what mm. For what should it be? So I think this is something. It's a good. It must be a good combination of both. So, and that's for me good music, and that's that's what I always like uh, to make. Yeah. Um, but I don't have any uh, special worldwide message. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I appreciate what we did with Tim Leary, but also with other musicians, and so yes, okay, that's, I can I can go along with that. for a specific purpose, from what I understand. Could you tell us about how this came about? <clears throat> um, I don't know what you mean. You mean a story for my, for my, uh, 
Walkman? Yeah, yeah. Aha, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's just a small story. Uh, mm. uh, I was uh, I was playing with with Klaus Schulze for a tour for a while in '81 for some concerts, and the tour suddenly was cancelled, and then. Uh, a few weeks later, well, we, we wanted to meet again in Hamburg, and um, and uh, I said, okay, why not? And, um, and I was just doing one of my millions of sessions that I did in the in these years because I built up my, I built up my studio in 1974. I started with Inventions for Electric Guitar, which was the first one. I wanted to record in my studio because I needed time and I needed the, the space and, and uh, yeah, possibility. Three months or so, uh, I worked on this, and from that point on, I started to build with additional mixing desks, additional tape recorders, additional instruments. So it grew more and more and more. But all over all the years, I was playing music, I was recording music, I was making sessions in my studio. Uh, so this was just another one like this, but obviously it was a good one, or well, maybe a best one. Uh, <laughs> so um, it was a bit different. Yeah. So uh, and I just recorded something because I wanted to go on the plane, and at those time uh, there were no music in planes. Uh, not on, I don't remember. Yeah, there was, but not on on short distance. Uh, yeah, so I took the walk and, and uh, oh, I, I just pushed a button and recorded something and made a, made a I prepared just a little and uh, made one of these sessions. It was not intended to become a record. It was not intended my next production because I was working on something different. I was working on a bigger uh, or classical style of album with, with synthesizers, with uh, keys, and, uh, or classical composition style. And yeah, but just for, for that I, I recorded this. And then I was a bit, uh, yeah, uh, um, surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Because I didn't know, I thought, well, this is a good piece of music, and I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, because I thought I should uh, maybe release it, yeah. but I still had a contract with Virgin, which was open for options, but not. And in the beginning, when I when I recorded the first or the first releases on Virgin New Age, Blackout, so the year 1976, uh, 77. It was still a small company and very experimental, um, but then came. Uh, they they grew very very fast uh, to a very very big and commercial company, and I thought this is not anymore the the, the right place where I should <coughs> release this because uh, how 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 would they promote it? Yeah, they don't know how to promote it because. At the time, it was uh, there were not even CDs. CDs were just invented, mm. so it had to be a record, a vinyl, and so I had to. Uh, I had a piece of sixty minutes with only two chords. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> how to make it? 
And uh, so I thought, well, okay. Uh, Did you play it for Richard Branson? I play, yes, I went, uh, I, I spoke with, with uh, Simon Draper, who was running the company, he said, okay, we can try. Uh, and I said, but see Richard, and I went to see Richard. He, he lived on a houseboat at the time. And uh, yeah, he listened to it, and uh, he, he was holding his little baby in his arms, and I had a cassette uh, MC with me. And, Listen a little bit, and the baby was falling asleep. And I said, Mario, you can make a fortune later. <laughs> 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 so I said, Thank you, okay. But finally, I decided maybe not the right, um, not to, not the right uh, uh, company at the moment. And so it was uh, only two years later, of, yeah, beginning of '84, that I released it. Again, with Schulz on a small label, he, he founded a new label. He had before, he had a bigger one, which also went too commercial, and he sold it, and uh, so, but he wanted to make something again, something small, and asked me if, if I would like to, to participate with one music. And so I thought, man, maybe that's the best. And so we started very small, with, with some two or 3,000 copies or so, and, And how was it received? Um, at the beginning, it was in, in Germany. There were very, very uh, bad reactions. People told me uh, I, I, I really missed any development in electronic music. I should better listen to uh, uh, to Depeche Mode. <laughs> 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 uh, so I said, uh, this is just uh, ridiculous what, what I'm playing there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but 15 years later, they excused for this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the moment when you were recording it. Did you know, did you feel it was something magical yourself? Where was your, what were you feeling at the time during this hour that you were making this piece? Um, Nothing special. I just played it, and I thought, "Wow, it's good." It was a yes. In a way, it was a magic moment because everything worked. And, and many times, there's there's something wrong. There's some some technical problem. There's a noise. There's a crackling, and, and something is too loud, or some something is out of tune. Something. And this time, boom, everything just worked. And, and there was nothing. There was really no point to say, "Well, uh, yeah." No. <laughs> mm -hmm. The stars were aligned. In a way, yes. And, but as I said, I, I did that many times before. And I had quite a few pieces, but sometimes only 10 minutes, sometimes it was 15 minutes, and then some, there was some break or some. Uh, so this was, yeah, in a way, really unique. And, mm. and uh, that's the reason why mm, yeah, I finally decided that it's, it would be stupid to leave it somewhere else, but I should release it. Mm -hmm. So my friends told me, yeah, it's great, and do it. And, uh, do you have other things like this lying around that you've recorded that haven't seen the light of day? I still have quite a few in my archives, yes, yes. Mm. And, uh, uh, I, I did a release from some of it in the uh, mid of the 90s. I made a series of six CDs called uh, uh, The Private Tapes. And so this is 
also from this period, some of tapes that I made, some live tapes and so on. But yes, there's still a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to make uh, the, the next uh, private tapes, numbers, or I don't know. or musical hosts in New York City, people like Larry Levan and David Mancuso were uh, playing E2E4 in kind of underground downtown New York parties. Um, step by step, it was, in, it was uh, maybe in the middle of the 80, 1985 or 6 or so, uh, somebody told me that they played in New York clubs and that they're dancing to it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I never thought of it as a dance piece of music because of course it's rhythm, it's a lot of rhythm, mm. but it's not heavy bass drum, boom, boom, boom. And so I, 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 I just couldn't imagine. I, I thought, oh, oh, yeah. So, uh, and then, yes, it's got more and more. And then it came somehow, I got reactions from, I heard from, from DJs in England playing it. And then there was a story with, with Svenio Latino mm -hmm. in Italy. Uh, this was also crazy. There were suddenly two different uh, parties of DJs, one in Bologna, the other one in Milano, and they both wanted to make it, and they were just fighting who was the first. And uh, the company from Bologna was faster. They, they phoned, and, and the next morning, this guy stood in front of me. I said, OK, I must hear it. And the next morning, he was in Berlin and, and said, yeah. So did he, did he ask you if he could use? Yes, you, yes. Oh, he yeah. did ask yes, you. Yes, he did ask course. you. Yeah, oh, yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what did uh, you think about that? Had you heard of this kind of music, like house music, before? Uh, was it on your radar? No, not very much. I, I, I think it was not. In nineteen in eighty nine, it was already house music mm -hmm. called. Yeah. I don't remember that. No. Yeah. Uh, or it's dance music at least. Yeah, Doesn't really I, matter about yeah, the genre. It was dance. Yeah, dance music. But was this a scene that you were aware of? No, not very much. No. And what did you think of their uh, of of Spain and Latina? Did you like it when you heard it? Uh, yes, I thought it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, I, I mean, it was the first time, and that, that I heard such a strange variation of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, but uh, uh, my proposal was to call it Svenu Latino, not E two E four. In the beginning, they wanted to have it just as a remix of E two E four in that way, uh, and to name it. Uh, I said, no, this is not E2E4, mm -hmm. so it's better to give it a different name, but to refer to E2E4. Uh, there were also legal problems with my German company, and with, uh, so I thought, let's name it, make it a different piece called Sueño Latino, based on E2E4. <laughs> they, you know, 
this was a bit uh, 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 not really outspoken in the beginning, but they finally re-released it last year or before last year. They made a very nice cover again and explaining the whole story mm -hmm. and how it came all about. That's a very nice cover. I think we, we still have one here so if you want it. But it seems so. to open up a whole new world. I mean. I don't know if you're aware, hopefully I'm not getting Danny Tenegli in trouble, but Code 718 Equinox also sampled it on Strictly Rhythm. Uh -huh. uh, I know Carl Craig used it. I'll dig a little list for you later if you like. Um, <laughs> so you're like, where are my royalties? But uh, it really kind of opened up a whole new world because I heard E284 for the first time at the loft at my friend Dave Mancuso's party yeah, yeah. and I was dancing to it. And then I heard Suena Latino, and I heard the Code 718, and Carl Craig's remix. Uh, um, and uh, so that's kind of, and then it kind of took me into your music, because I was a fan of Can, and I was a fan of Amon Duel, and I was a fan of Kraftwerk, early Kraftwerk, and then I, it just took me into your music, uh, into a whole new area. Did you find that you all of a sudden had a, a bunch of new fans? Did it, did it work well for you? Uh, yes, of course, but uh, it's yes, it, it worked really step by step over the years. So every year was something new. There was a new mix and another mm -hmm. one, a new remix. There was another. Yeah, there were already some some cover versions or, or illegal versions existing mm -hmm. before in the in the eighties. Uh, that I never heard before. This was what the Italian guys played to me. Uh, and of course, then there were legal versions. And uh, yes, it's a, of course, it was a new audience. Yeah. That's definitely. Yeah. But it was not from one day to the next. It was. It's still going on. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, uh, it's a never-ending story. Yeah. <laughs> why do you think why do you think people gravitate towards this? Um, I think it's because uh, the music is quite simple and uh, so it, it really motivates or it, it maybe inspires people to 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 do something with it. That's probably why why there are so many remixes or remakes or cover versions or uh, because it's, it sounds very easy and it sounds very light and, and then it inspires to, to make something on your own or to make something on top of it or to, to use it in a way. And because this is, this is very fluent and very, um, yes, very minimalistic that the music is changing, but but very little is changing over the period. Always one thing is one thing, the next thing. So uh, it inspires you maybe to to work with it or to play with, to play with it uh, in a way. And so if you listen to it very carefully, you will find that that it's always changes. Uh, if you don't, you don't have to. And, but for example, if you would cut it, if you would cut, make an edit at uh, 10 minutes and then go later in at 20 minutes, you would hear a break because there has been a development in between which, which you actually don't notice. Uh, mm. This is because it's completely out of the moment. It is really improvised and I just use basic themes. I use a very simple chord to chord system. 
uh, I use a very simple bass line and I only change sometimes the, the, the notes and the bass line. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, I use, I use, um, <coughs> I use different sequences to shift the, the, the point where the, uh, from the one, two, three, four, for the, for the chords that is always, um, how to say it, um, uh, the intonation of each, each chord is, is different and you can change it with, with the volume. So it's, it's always shifting and moving in a way. So uh, mm -hmm. and that's, that gives it a fluent line over, over the whole time. And, and that's probably what, what, yeah, what, what, what is still attracting today. Uh, I don't know. Did you ever hear it at a party, or at least even one of the Suena Latino, the, the Suena Latino version, or or your or the original E three four? Did you ever hear it at a, at a disco or at a party or a club before, and seeing people's reaction to it on a dance floor? <laughs> no, not in the eighties. No, I remember the first time was in eighty nine when I went to Bologna with the Suena people, Suena mm -hmm. Latino. They asked me to play, to play an additional, to play a second version with additional guitar, and they invited me to Bologna. And yes, I remember I went to the streets and I went at a barber shop, and it was very Latino. Always <laughs> 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 here from various corners. Yeah, it was really a big hit, there, number yeah. one for the summer. Yeah, and uh, yes, you, you could listen it. Yeah, but. Uh, no, I don't go to to discourse, so I'm <laughs> Well, I remember, uh, I mean, you must have heard some good stories about people listening to e E2E4. I remember once I was um, <coughs> on the radio, and I got to the radio station, and one of my turntables was broken, so I refused to, to use it because I only had one channel. And I had E2E4 with me, or I had my locker there. So I thought, oh, great, I'll play E2E4, my whole radio show, on one turntable. And people called, <laughs> flipped it, you know. But people called me, and my, my DJ name was Cosmo. Cosmo, I'm having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> Have you heard any interesting stories of people listening to E2E4? Um, oh, Any babies made or anything that you, <laughs> maybe, you know. <laughs> I bet there has been. <laughs> I bet they're pretty cosmic, too. <laughs> uh, no. How about you? Have, How does it make you feel? Years to before, to there, was a, there was a couple in America, they named their baby Ashwa, so mm. it was nice. <laughs> 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 But that was before it was right? <laughs> It's very cosmic. Do they live on the West Coast? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Um, live, how does that make you feel to be performing this so many years later? I don't know, it's 30, 35 years later. 
um, I never thought of performing it. So for me, it was a one-time session, and mm -hmm. not not possible to to repeat anyhow. Um, because I used all the equipment of my studio, the mixing desks, and different synthesizers, tape machines, every all the setup that I used yeah, every day, and um, I, I thought it's not possible to, to to bring all this equipment somewhere to build it up. Uh, it would take weeks, and then to perform, and then by accident have the same moment, and then. Uh, so I, I never thought about it. On the other hand, I uh, uh, I started uh, I started beginning of 2000. Uh, I became interested again in playing live and doing solo concerts. Uh, actually, it started inspired by my wife, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Ilona she's a film director, a producer, a director, and she made a film about a silent movie player called uh, one of the last original silent movie player who was nearly over 100 years old and was still performing mm -hmm. in the original style that how silent movies were uh, accompanied on piano in the 1920s. And uh, so he, this was his job that he made just for his living. Uh, he was studying conductor and composer, and later, of course, nobody wants any more a side movie piano player. Mm. And he started again when he was 65 or 70 years <coughs> old, and he really became, uh, he had a second career then, a really big career, because he could play in the original style as it was done in the 1920s uh, uh, because he knew the original music. He was completely improvising for mm. two hours, for three oh, hours, yes. long film. Some guys, he didn't even know the film. He was just looking and playing some, some kind of mood or some kind of, uh, yeah, completely wow. improvising. And she, Ilona made a film about him and this inspired me maybe to, in, to, to do something with that uh, electronic music in a way of uh, uh, improvising towards this, this in connection with this film and I did some and for this purpose I started again to work to think about a live performance and I became uh, interested in this in this program Ableton from for, for the um, for the computer program which I found really interesting for a live performance because uh, the other programs before, or what, what was the computer development, I mean, this is a long story about the computer development. I uh, did some uh, early programming with Apple computers and Commodore in, in the early 80s already. But of course this was more for fun and there was nothing really to use for music. Then came the Ataris with, with, the, with his, some, some programs. That was okay, but it was not really attractive in playing. So it was for composing. I found it interesting. Yeah, I did some composition, but it was there was no reason to to, to take some of these machines on stage to play it. So it mm. They were really only for the studio, and only for and not there was nothing to improvise. And it was only beginning of the yes at the turn of the century 
that computer technology developed and that computers get reliable and then I, I used a, I used a studio studio version for my for my studio recordings. But with this program <coughs> you really could start, I could imagine to go on stage and to play live as the name of the program is. It's a very simple trick what they did. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not anyway. Liased with this company, <laughs> but but it really impressed me. So the technical development impressed me, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. So I started to play this and uh, to to work in this direction for this. Uh, I, I made a music card for an old Mona uh, silent movie from 1921 called Schloss Vogelöd in German, English title is, 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 I forgot it, it's a kind of early thriller, mystic thriller. And uh, I performed it with, a, with an or part with an orchestra, another part with electronics. And then I thought maybe I could continue, re, uh, rebuild some of my older pieces, maybe for, for new solo performances. And that's exactly what I did with E2E4. I we took it into pieces and then and made a yeah a kind of uh, yeah a kind of adaption for the for the for the laptop program. So today I use this program and I use just a, a keyboard and just one guitar, which I play sometimes mm -hmm. on top of it, some other instrument sometimes. And uh, but that is the possibility to perform it. Mm -hmm. And so my first performance of E2E4 happened uh, 2006 in Japan at the uh, Metamorphose Festival, a huge uh, open air festival. And yeah, from then on I performed it sometimes, so special occasions, special. I, I played one time in Berlin at the famous Club Berghain because mm -hmm. I found it an appropriate place for it. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that was one of the only place, one of the few places that I really know as a disc in a way of a disco, <laughs> a modern yeah. disco. I played it with 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 the Joshua Light Show at the at New York yeah. at the Lincoln Center mm -hmm. Open Air. I played it in Beijing at a big festival from. Uh, from German uh, uh, Culture in Institute, I played it in. Oh, I don't know. But sometimes, sometimes. I think a lot of people here will be going on on Wednesday. Correct? Is there most people going here? Well, I was too late to get tickets. My friends, a few of my friends are oh going. No. I just missed out on the tickets. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> there was no use. Yeah. Well, have you got any spares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have one last question for you before we. Uh, I know there's a few people have questions, and some are quite technical as well. What do you listen to when you want to chill out or relax? What do you turn to now? Uh, E3 4. <laughs> <laughs> Still. <laughs> yes, yeah, so some, somebody asked me, what are my favorite records when you do this, when you do this, when you, when you, I don't know. And I, th I thought about it and to everything, what's the answer? E3 4. E3 4. <laughs> because it's so, yes, it, you can listen to it any time. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but actually, I have to say that I don't. <coughs> most of the time, I say uh, uh, I don't listen to music. I make music. 
So when I really want to relax, I make music. Uh, and when I want to, I, I don't listen to music. I, of course, I listen, but I only listen to music when, I'm, when some, I get some friends recommend me something or say, oh, you should listen. How do you like this or that? You know. But usually today, I, I don't listen very much to music. I, I, I read books or <laughs> so. But uh, or actually play music myself. Yeah, that's, I still find it relaxing. And, uh, so uh, maybe I did that with Ichui for it on that evening, on that day, that I just relaxed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And by chance, by accident, I pushed the button, the red button, and recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all glad that you did. <laughs> A big thank you to my special guest, Manuel Gottsching, for sharing his recollections on the creation of E2E4 and to the staff at Brilliant Corners. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to our weekly Classic Album Sundays podcasts via your favorite podcast provider and keep your ears open for our next one in which I tell the story behind Erica Badu's Mama's Gun. If you would like to find out more about Classic Album Sundays, head over to our website where you can find info on how to join as one of our Patreon members to attend our virtual online events, meetups, and streams. I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and now I encourage you to have a listen to Manuel Gottsching's E2E4, following our listening guidelines. Turn off your phone, refrain from conversation, turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and then listen to the album all the way through without interruption. Thanks for listening. Thank you.